I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up and spend a few minutes talking about several critical issues going on in the world these days. There's an interesting article in the New York Times talking about the rise of Christian nationalism. And after our conversation with Professor Perry last week, we felt it very germane to continue that conversation. Also, the state of Oklahoma passed an almost absolute zero-tolerance bill when it comes to abortion. So we're going to talk about women's reproductive rights. We're also going to talk about the situation in Ukraine as it was revealed this week that Russia has committed war crimes in many people's opinion and everything that's going on with that situation. And then many, many other things going on in the world that Autumn and I are going to touch on. And then later on the pod, we were out in North Carolina recently and had the privilege of sitting down with two Baptist missionaries, Gennady and Mina Podaski from Kiev, Ukraine. And it is a fascinating interview that you will not want to miss. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good episode. Rainforest, volcanoes, coastlines with crystal blue water, fresh fruit and seafood. Join Good Faith Media for an immersive experience on Hawaii's big island. Discover brilliant night skies with our friend, astrophysicist Paul Wallace. Explore and have fun with your small group of adventurers. Join us May 21st through the 28th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Autumn, it's good to talk. How are things with you? They are, you know, they're doing well. I feel like we were talking a little bit before we started recording that um, sometimes when our neighbor state to the south does something silly, Oklahoma decides they need to sort of fall to the occasion. And no, I've not used the wrong preposition. I did mean fall, not rise. So that's sort of what we're looking at right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yesterday was an interesting day, not only in the state of Oklahoma, but for us here locally. Uh, You and I both live in Norman, Oklahoma, the home of the University of Oklahoma. And for uh, Sooner. Yes, you know how to do it. We didn't go there. Neither of us went Neither, there. Know, right? That's all right. <laughs> you live here 15 years, you know how to do that. You um, learn it. You know, we had a local an election, a uh, very contested mayoral election, and for the first time in a local election, at least around here, it was extremely partisan. Uh, there's been a local group here that kind of rose to power during the pandemic, did not like mask mandates, uh, railed against a CRT, have really divided the, the city uh, into conservative. and They all flew up to D.C. on the, sixth, on the 5th of January, sure, I'll have you know. Uh, some of them certainly did. Uh, but uh, it was a contested uh, election. Uh, runoff was yesterday. Uh, the conservative candidate won uh, the election here. And Norman historically has been kind of this blue to purple dot in the entire state because of the university being here. But uh, it seems to be changing as of recent. And it just goes to show me and hopefully provide evidence to others who are watching this kind of stuff is that while the national debate happens around some of these larger issues out of Washington, D.C., that debate is now coming to Main Street. And the politicization of local elections 
uh, I mean, the, the conservative candidate ran a conservative platform and nationalized it here in Norman. So we weren't mm-hmm. talking about potholes and uh, treatment centers, uh, water treatment centers. Uh, they were talking about larger issues, about defunding the police and, and all of that. So they nationalized it. And it was it was really heartbreaking. And I, I feel for our city, but uh, that is the way it goes in uh, a lot of these red states that uh, and you and I live in one of them. But not only did that uh, election take place here in Norman, the House in the state of Oklahoma also passed a very, very egregious law yesterday. Governor Stitt said if it's passed by the Senate, he will certainly pass pass or will sign it, uh, turn it into law. But it is a law that com- almost completely outlaws abortion in the state. And yes, and it, it is just really disappointing. You and I have had abortion care providers on this program, and it's just really tricky when you get government involved in decisions that should be between a person and their doctor. Like that's just really the long and short of it. And you know, you don't have to be. You don't have to be pro-life or pro-choice, but we just need to be pro-health. And, and what's best for women's health is not letting Governor Stitt decide what happens. Right. And so, Adam, I want to ask you uh, a question because, you know, I, I always from I always have been asked this question of, about the issue of abortion and women's health. I always feel like I'm inadequate to answer those questions. I can, you know, try Are to Are you answer. a couple ovary short, Mitch? <laughs> That's exactly. God bless. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm not shy of an opinion, so I'll provide one, but I always feel in- inadequate to do so. So I want to ask you something. You and I grew up in very similar uh, backgrounds and churches and faith traditions, very conservative. Uh, one of the, the great sins of the world was abortion. Uh, it was railed against time and time again from the pulpit to youth ministers uh, to church leaders. Uh, I knew what abortion was before I knew what sex was. Yeah. And Truly. That, that says a lot. I mean, it really does. So you and I grew up in that kind of era. Um, obviously, two different genders. But as we have grown, we have come to change our minds about that particular issue, realizing mm-hmm. that what we were being told was... Being, th- those those conclusions were being formed by inaccurate information. Uh-huh. And so we were able to change our mind, but in doing so, we did not have to abandon our faith to do so. So as a Christian woman, um, how do you reconcile your support of women's reproductive health and your faith? That's a really great question. I, you know, definitely wrote my fair share of persuasive essays on why abortion was horrible in middle school and high school because that's all I'd been fed. I had never heard an alternative argument about it. Um, And honestly, until I went to college, not because I was radicalized by college, but because I was I was educated on the statistics around abortion care and that. A lot of, you know, a lot of what you hear is, oh, it's promiscuous women who won't, you know, be responsible with their choices of, you know, of sex and different things like that. And and that's just not the truth of it. It just really is not. And I think that 
a lot of people who have opinions on abortion don't have the full picture. They don't have the full story. They've heard manipulation. They've heard emotional sort of testimonies and fear-based opinions about what abortion is rather than sitting with a woman who either wants to very much have this child, but it's just not the right choice for their family at that time or their body at that time. Or if they're sitting with someone who has found themselves in a situation where this isn't the right choice for them. And that's really where it lands with me. I also am a person who has experienced a kind of pregnancy that was not viable, but you know, could have gone on longer than it did. But for my health, we ended up using some of the same kind of abortion care um, ingredients, pills, medicines, whatever they were. And now some of those same methods that saved my life at 22 years old um, are would not be available to me. Right. And it's just insane. And that's where I I get really not only frustrated, but really angered about this type of legislation that inserts itself between a physician's care and their patient. Because as we have been told time and time again by physicians, by patients, by people who are experts in this field, many, if not most, and I would even say a vast majority, of the women who come to the conclusion that they want to end a pregnancy, that decision is not entered into lightly. It's no. after deep consultation with their physician, deep conversation with their family, and a deep search within their own soul to make that particular decision. And as you just described, your personal story I mean, it's it's a decision that is extremely personal and private, and and it's painful, kind of painful, right? Painful. Physically, mentally, emotionally, yes, all of those things. And so to to insert oneself, and let's just face facts: it's primarily white middle-aged men who mm -hmm. are trying to to dictate this uh, policy and turn it into law. Um, is is immoral to me, yeah. and as a person of faith. I think any time there is a person in a position of power who is trying to exert their authority over someone and insert their skewed theological understanding of what is taking place, that that is not only oppressive, I think it's sinful, I think it's evil, and I hope that the country comes to its right mind. I hope the Supreme Court in this next session, once they rule on this abortion case that's in front of them, comes to the right conclusion and upholds Roe v. Wade. Because mm -hmm. if they don't, we're looking at a divided country. I mean, it's already divided, but then you are looking at a legalistic divided country. Uh, yeah. And it's we would be on the cusp of possibly a, a red union and a blue union. Uh, I think that's that's where we would be headed if uh, this issue is adjudicated incorrectly. There's so much hypocrisy surrounding this issue, too, because I'm never going to name names, but there are so many people, good pro-life touting folks in my hometown who 1,000% provided abortion care for their daughters when they needed it. Mm -hmm. They're just it. It's like 
over and over again this is the story like no it's not okay for anyone else but like when my family gets in a pickle like here we'll be and I just we just need to to just admit it's it's sort of the same fear mongering that happens around immigration right I mean we we hear these same sort of sensationalized stories where it's like the other and like they're awful and they're and, and it just anytime we start getting into us versus them no we are all in the same boat and there but for the grace of God have have you not needed abortion care in your life you know i i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy i really wouldn't but but here we are and another strange component of of this uh, issue is that it's solely focused on women's health ding 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 yep nobody's trying to legislate a man's body no i mean just let that sink in for a second how many laws are there that tell men what they can and what they can't do with their bodies. I like to see you try, yeah. right? Yeah. I read a statistic recently that uh, something like more than 40% of pregnancies in girls 15 and younger, 15 and younger, were fathered by people, men between the ages of 23 and 29. And so, and there's all this talk around like the promiscuity of of young women, but not a lot around the violence of young, of men. Like those are real men, twenty right. to twenty nine, and I think that says a lot about where we are as a society. Well, on behalf of a lot of my fellow Okies in the state, America, we apologize. <laughs> so, hopefully, uh, the better angels of the Supreme Court uh, will rightly decide. Uh, in favor to uphold Roe v. Wade and that uh, women's health and reproductive rights will continue to be the law of the land because there's just so many women out there, uh, again, as you articulated earlier, so many women out there that are dealing with a very difficult, very personal decision, and they need to have the law behind them in order to make these decisions. So. Well, there was an article in the New York Times that was released this week about the continued growing rise of Christian nationalism. Last week, onward, we, Christian <laughs> soldiers. Are, are we marching? Marching to war, on to war. Here we go. <laughs> Let's get our Christian flag. Woo! That's right. You remember singing that at uh, VBS? I mean, uh, uh, it was yes. <laughs> With gusto. I mean, it was, <laughs> as an adult now, it's so weird to think about. Uh, my daughter would say it's hashtag cringy. It's cringy. <laughs> it's cringy, exactly. Well, last week, uh, you and I sat down with Sam Perry, a professor of uh, sociology and political science and all things, really, uh, reg- re- regarding Christian nationalism at the University of Oklahoma. He was cited in a Washington Post article a couple of weeks ago. Uh as uh, he was part of a group that gave a report on the rise and radicalism of the Christian right. Uh, the New York Times has followed that up with an article of their own as uh, two reporters actually attended one of these Christian services uh, not long ago and just reported on what they heard and just the, the frightening rhetoric that comes from these services. And not only as an American citizen, it concerns me, but again, as a person of faith, as someone who claims to be a Jesus follower and a professed Christian, not only is this frightening for me as a citizen, it enrages me as a person of faith at the perversion 
of yep. the gospel at the way they use Jesus in this manner. They totally, totally take Jesus out of context. They take the Scripture out of context. To be honest with you, they don't even talk about Scripture, and they only allude to Jesus when they pray in His name. They think that is the epitome of their Christian faith. All the other times, guess who they're talking about these days? Does his name rhyme with dump? That is exactly right. President Dump. (laughs) (laughs) Former. Former President Dump. Um, Yes, that they are just so thankful that, in their opinion, God sent the former president uh, to lead this country and to open people's eyes because now, now we, now we know. God also sent like plagues. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, like God goes ah. with both hands. Really. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, was was the former president uh, a Moses figure or a Pharaoh figure? You go figure it mm. out. Uh, let's see. The plague actually led us to getting rid of the Pharaoh. No, never mind. <laughs> I know. I have to inverse this theology a little bit. No, it's it's so frightening, and I just feel like if Jesus were here, he'd be he'd be flipping some tables. Yeah, absolutely. And the more I hear about this, and now that the Post has brought it to our attention, and uh, now the Times uh, has reiterated this, it just reminds me, Autumn, how important organizations like Good Faith Media are in this conversation. Because many of us have been fighting this battle for many, many years. We have been trying to formulate an alternative uh, voice when it comes to the religious right, because we saw this coming. We saw that during the takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention, when it was taken over by lies and manipulation, that that's where we were going. And so went the Southern Baptist Convention, so went the Republican Party. And as a former Republican, and I want that to sink into many of you who know me, as a former Republican, I am heartbroken for that party. Because there's still good men and women in that party. I still have family members who are Republican. I still have friends who are Republican. And they lament where their party has come. But it has been a complete takeover of their party. And we saw it coming years ago, decades ago, when this same bunch of people took over the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, It is simply white Christian nationalism. It is bigotry and racism in another name. And it is this isolationist, fascist, authoritarian type of mentality. You know what it is, Mitch. As a semi-proud native of Waco, Texas, white Christian nationalism, you heard it here first, TM, 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 it's a cult. Yeah. You're in a cult. Yeah, and I'm just going to tell you. And their cult leader is the former president, which... They he's speak not about- even handsome enough to be a cult leader. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. He doesn't have the bone structure of David Koresh, Mitch. He doesn't have it. <laughs> he does not. <laughs> so, and he's no Jim Jones either. So No. Uh, no. Uh, no. It's just. No, but but you're, how- you're, you're right. I mean, when you, if you were to go to one of these events, if you were to watch or listen to the people who perpetuate this mindset, You always must be weary when they talk more about the former president or anybody for that matter than they do about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's terrifying. We talk about a lot of issues on this show. We talk about a lot of individuals. But make no mistake about it, as people of faith, and Autumn and I are confessing Christians, 
we filter everything that we say and we do, or at least we tempt to, through the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Because for us, he is the epitome of God's revelation to this world. Mm-hmm. And I just don't get this. I don't get any sense of that from those who are espousing this ideology of white Christian yeah. nationalism. No, but Jesus was never us versus them. No. So. He just wasn't. He wasn't. And when he was uh, opposed, I mean, when he was opposed to people and he was turning tables over, as you mentioned a moment ago, uh, he was doing it for those who were exerting their power over others and mm-hmm. who was oppressing others and who was you know, limiting the grace of God to all and perverting people. the grace of yeah. God for their own gain. You're, right. You're absolutely right. So, so yeah, check out that article. Uh, it's a it's a it's a conversation that will continue to go on. Um, but I'll uh, link it in our show notes. Yeah, I appreciate it. But uh, you know, again, I'm just reminded every time articles like this are released how important the work that we are doing here at Good Faith Media. Uh, is to this conversation. So check us out, goodfaithmedia.org. And, uh, Slash donate. <laughs> Put my development hat on yeah, for a minute. Man, that was a quick change. <laughs> uh, well, Autumn, you and I got to, or we as a group, I guess, in North Carolina a couple of weeks ago, got to sit down with Gennady and Mina uh, Podaski. Uh, who are missionaries in key or who are missionaries in Kiev, Ukraine? They're actually stateside now. Uh, Gennady is actually of Russian descent, and Amina is of Ukrainian descent. But we got to sit down and talk with them, hear what they are uh, witnessing uh, through phone calls and Zoom calls uh, in Kiev. Uh, some really heart wrenching stories, but. Speaking of heart-wrenching, the news broke this week that as uh, Russian troops left uh, Kiev, that it appears as though they were committing war crimes, assassinating citizens uh, where they stood in the city. In fact, I got word this week that one of the uh, professors teaching at an evangelical Baptist seminary there in Kiev was one of the dead who was found on the streets there. And so our hearts break for him and his family and the entire seminary family there. But uh, uh, the the evidence just continues to mount. The outrage continues to mount globally. But I keep going back and listening to President Zelensky's uh, speeches as they continue to mount up, uh, even mm-hmm. speaking to the Grammys of all crowds. Mm-hmm. But this week he spoke to the United Nations directly, and particularly the Security Council. And he keeps saying, if you can't help us, then what good are you, period? Look at your own charter. Look at what you have charged yourself to do, and you're unwilling to help us. I'm, he's not even talking about joining uh, NATO you know, he's talking about trying to get some support and help because because we haven't intervened, he's showing these bodies that are now laying mm-hmm. on the ground all across Ukraine. I understand that it is a very complex and nuanced issue. Right. And right. there are gen- legitimate concerns about a U.S. involvement or European involvement leading to World War III. I get that. But just know there is a price being paid for our yep. involvement there. Or with the bodies of Ukrainian people. Yeah. And yeah. So it was just, it was heartbreaking. And I hope that uh, you are 
challenged, that you're inspired, that you listen with both your heart and mind to this interview because uh, Gennady and Nina are just fabulous people and have done some great work uh, in Kiev. And so uh, take a listen, and Adam and I will be back uh, next week uh, with another guest and uh, look forward to, to seeing what this week transpires. Hopefully we'll have some more positive things to talk about next week, Adam. But uh, uh, stay tuned for Gennady and Mina Podaski. Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Uh, well, Gennady and Mina, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Um, 22 days we have been experiencing this war, and your country, Ukraine, has been, and the people of Ukraine have been suffering uh, in this war. You've been in contact with those on the ground. What are you hearing from those in Kiev? Well, we hear much more than we can tell. Because we are watching, of course, we're watching American news, European news, Ukrainian news, plus reports of the people on the ground. So every time we call or talk or try to encourage, people are telling us their stories. What's happening, bombing, sirens, if they have food, if they don't have food, what's happening, if somebody is trying to evacuate, what have been the distractions there. So it is, it is not good there. One lady, one of our foster moms, was um, in the basement of a Baptist church that is one block away from the village of Hope. And she had been there for 15 days with no drinkable water and no electricity. And it's winter, so that means that it no, heating. no heating as well. Um, she was able to get out on day 15, and she said, I have lived through hell. When we talk to people, uh, we're able to talk with them. You can hear the sirens, you can hear the helicopters, you can hear the planes flying above, and sometimes you can hear the rockets going through. Sometimes they don't have to tell us. Sometimes we can see it in their eyes. One of the things that I think the world has been incredibly inspired has, uh, is the resolve of the Ukrainian people. Can you talk to, to that? Because in many instances, this is the first time people have seen this kind of resolve from the people of Ukraine. Has it always been there? I mean, t tell us a little bit about why we're seeing such Very interesting because how the Lord prepares us all and, and how history has prepared Ukraine, and I'm talking just about the recent history, uh, we were there during the Orange Revolution. Some people heard about the Orange Revolution. In 2004. And it was a peaceful way for the Ukrainian people to change some um, fake elections that had happened. Um, at that time, the president um, that had won 
or they had stolen his his uh, presidency, uh, begged the people to do it in a peaceful way. They said, give your other cheek. He called churches to pray. Um, and every single day people were praying and they were in, in the center of, of Ukraine, they were praying, different denominations were praying. And so people were called to pray and to be pacifist. Um, and the Lord heard the cries of the people of Ukraine. And that was just the beginning because then, eight years ago, when there was another civil unrest, um, when we call it Maidan, which is the downtown square, the same thing happened. Um, and there was a semi-revolution. And again, the people of Ukraine were praying on their knees and asking God for peace and for God to hear the prayers. And, and they were trying to do it in a peaceful way. And so it has prepared. We never imagined that it would be to what extent. Um, and so there is an incredible determination of the people to unite, to support each other, and to give their lives for freedom. And it is regardless of the nationality of the people, because there is a large percentage of Russians, Russians living in Ukraine. And that I heard personally from a person, he told that if Ukraine will be under attack, I will take my arms up and I will go and protect my country because Ukraine is my country. And Ukrainians are peace-loving people, but the same way Ukrainians love in their independence and freedom, and they are ready and willing to die to protect it, and we can see it. Right now we have, we heard that there are 52 different nationalities represented in Kiev of volunteers that have decided to come and help the people of Ukraine to, to be independent to, and to win this war. That's remarkable. Another incredible image, some of the stories we've been hearing now, of people of faith in Ukraine who are coming together to pray for peace. There are regular services like in our church and the churches, some of the churches which we know, every day they send us a link, join us. We have a service from the basement of the church. So regardless of what's happened, many people who chose to stay there, they want to do something. So they are helping, they are protecting each other, they are praying, they are doing whatever they can do to, to help country. So there is indeed that spiritual awakening among people and understanding that God can do miracles. And they see the miracles. They see little miracles and they see big miracles. Um, I can tell you a hundred stories of, of miracles that are happening that we can see. Um, people that say there was a soldier, a Russian soldier that shoot towards me and I should be dead and the bullet went next to me. And I know that is because people are praying. Things like that, or or tanks that are supposed to come in and surround the city of Kiev, and they run out of gasoline. That is just a miracle. And people are praying specifically, may the tanks run out of gasoline. And you spoke about four distinct miracles in your presentation tonight that even after the bombing, still working. Can you talk about those? Yeah, so we have the, the train station is working. Um, not only is the miracle of being able to have people coming, getting out of Kiev, because right now is one of the cities, one of three major cities that are being um, attacked. And they will not stop, of course, because they want to take Kiev and that will mean that they take the whole country. And so people are able to get out, but also 
they're able to, when the train comes back in for more people, is loaded with medicine and with food. Um, and so the trains don't go out in time because it takes them time to get out all the stuff out of the trains. And so that's a huge miracle that things are actually coming into. It's the only way that things come into Kiev. All the other areas are kind of blocked. Um, the mobile internet is huge. Um, it they, is, yeah, it is working on the most uh, areas, Ukrainian-controlled territories. Mobile internet is working and we can talk and we can see people even in the basements we can see how they allocated what they are doing and we are counseling and helping people only by means of mobile internet the owner of tesla donated a mobile internet system that is being moved around so that it will be independent if they shut down the the, the ukrainian internet systems and so it's because that's one of the reasons why we're able to continue with that and then the banks do not open, they're not working, but online banking system is working and the ATM machines, the ATM machines work. That's a huge miracle because the, the, the machines run out of money every day. So somebody is going there in the middle of the night and filling them up with money. It's a commitment that the mayor of Kiev said, we will have money there. Um, there is a limit on how much people can get out and you might have to go to two or three different ATM machines. But how people go in in the night when there is martial law and anyone on the streets will be killed, we're not sure how it is that they fill those ATM machines, but the Lord is multiplying the money in the ATM machines. Uh, we're able to send uh, money to people there. Yeah, so when I'm sending the money, I'm sending a message to a person, can you receive money? Do you have access to the banking system? So then I send money through different means. Money can come there to their account within several minutes. Two, three minutes. And if it is a daytime, that person can immediately go to the closest ATM machine and draw money out and use it to support themselves, their families, or even helping to the other people. That's what we are doing also by sending it to some people who are engaging in these humanitarian relief efforts right now there. What would you like our listeners to know as a Russian about your thoughts what has taken place the last 22 days? It is a hard situation. It makes harder my personal position. I was born in Russia, but more precisely, I was born in the Soviet Union, but I was not born a communist. <laughs> I was born in a family of underground Russian Baptists. So I always knew that that political oppressive system is not my homeland, not my country. Yeah, I, I love people of Russia, I am Russian, but the political system, any system in any country which oppresses people, which kills people, which goes against God's laws, that is not the system from God. Many of them didn't know where they are going, what they will be doing, only when they came there and they cannot turn back. Because if they will turn back and they will not fulfill their military duties, disobey their orders, they will be shot. So they are caught in, in between. And I, I, I assume that many people, Russian people, Russian soldiers, they do have relatives, they do have connections to Ukraine, and they don't want this war. I might believe that majority of the people who know really what is happening, they don't want this war. How can our viewers help you in this effort? I will say that the biggest need is prayer.
because we have seen how prayer has moved mountains, little mountains and big mountains. Um, continue to pray that the internet works, that the AT machines work, that the train station works. Most of all, pray that the war will stop. That's what we need. We need the war to stop. Of course, there is a need for water. There is the need for food, um, especially in little towns that have been surrounded by Russians. Um, they're not able to receive anything, and people are dying of thirst, of hunger, of being cold, of, cold. of no medicines. Um, that's a humanitarian crisis in there. Um, for those that many people say, I want to do more, I want to do more. I want people to understand prayer is the number one thing we need in order for the war to stop. If people need to do more, um, they can give. They can give um, to the Ukrainian Relief Fund that CBF um, has started. Uh, we're able to tap into those funds and be able to send them to Ukraine. Um, they're being used as humanitarian efforts for those um, refugees that are in western part of Ukraine or that have actually crossed into Europe. At 2 in the morning, one lady sent me a message and said, Mina, can you, can you talk? Of course I can talk. 2, 3, 5 in the morning, of course I can talk. And she said, I'm having a panic attack. Can you give me your peace? So we talked for about an hour and she came down and then she videotape the people, the 23 people that were in the cellar of her home. And she did some little videotapes of people and her seven-year-old girl videotaped um, and say, hi, Mina. Different people were saying, hi, Mina. And then um, I felt like obliged to videotape myself. But I started crying and I said, we love you. We're praying for you. Stay strong in the Lord. And of course, I had tears and I sent it to them. And the little girl, after seeing my tears in the video, she videotaped herself again for another uh, video for me. And then she says, Mina, don't cry. We're doing okay. We're still alive. We still have some water and we have some macaroni for a few more days. So she was trying to encourage me. Beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your time. And we are praying for you and for the people of Ukraine. And we will get this out and try to, to get the message out how they can support your work uh, because it is desperately needed. And just on behalf of Good Faith Media, thank you so much. I want to thank you for listening to our interview with Gennady and Mina Badavsky, Baptist missionaries from Ukraine, and incredible work that uh, they continue to do. You can find how to support their work in our show notes. Autumn and I will be back next week with another guest. Uh, we're hoping to, to have somebody in studio via Zoom uh, to talk to them about uh, whatever's going on in the world today because there is just so much going on in the world today. But one of the things that Autumn and I both want to leave you today with is this. There's a lot of darkness in the world. We see war. We hear of friends with diagnosis of cancer. We hear of tragedy. We hear personal finances. We hear of so many things that can bring darkness into our lives. But what we want you to know more than anything is this. There is a light that is, is, is still shining. It may be a small light, but any light 
can penetrate darkness so that we're not completely alone. So you are not alone wherever you are. And you've got two friends here at Good Faith Weekly and Autumn and I. We want you to know that you are loved and cared for and prayed for and that there is light on the horizon and a new day will one day dawn. And keep the faith, keep doing everything you're doing. And remember, you are loved by God and you are loved by others. Until next week, keep living good faith.